let me share with you in about uh, four minutes the areas I was going to cover in detail. And if you want me to do any of those, you can ask that as part of your question. This may just stir up a few thoughts, but I don't want to deal with any of these if they aren't problems to you, okay? So um, uh, one area is the reality of the heavenly sanctuary. Is the heavenly sanctuary real? Or is it just a figment of our imagination? And why is that important? Very crucial thing. I'd be happy to talk about that if you want. Uh, what are the pillars of the sanctuary doctrine? I believe there are two pillars. One is typology and one is prophecy. The types and the prophecies. And both of those have been under attack. Claiming that we should not really argue from type to antitype. You can't look at Leviticus and tell what's going to happen, what's going to happen in the future. That's all illegitimate to do. Historical critical method has argued that God can't predict the future. And so uh, really long, any long-range predictions are out in Scripture. If you want to talk about that, I'll be happy to talk about that. Uh, the, the picture of prophecy, the year-day principle, the uh, historicist view of prophecy, all of that has been under attack. You want to talk about that? be happy to. Uh, the investigative judgment, the idea of an investigative judgment, it was claimed and is still claimed by some Adventist theologians that that is an invention by Adventists shortly after 1844 as a face-saving device. But there isn't really such a thing as an investigative judgment in the Bible. I'm convinced that the investigative judgment is a procedure that goes all the way through Scripture. It's the very procedure of God that he deals with as he's dealing with individuals and nations throughout history. be happy to give some examples of that. Uh, there are those who argue that uh, Adventists, you know, teach a two-stage atonement. We teach that in Leviticus that the sins, that when the, the sin offering was offered, that the individual was forgiven, but the record of those sins went into the sanctuary. And then at the end of the year, those were cleansed. Most Christians don't believe that. Most Christians believe that there's only one stage, atonement. And uh, what is the evidence? Is, do Adventists have a leg to stand on to argue for a two-stage atonement? I think we do. Very powerful case. be happy to share a story about that. Um, Book of Hebrews. Some have argued, hey, Hebrews doesn't teach what Adventists teach. Hebrews teaches that when Christ went to heaven, he went straight into the Holy of Holies to start the Day of Atonement. So how can you say that the Day of Atonement started in 1844? Well, I think there's some amazing new evidence that shows that the book of Hebrews is perfectly consistent with what Adventists teach. Jesus didn't start Day of Atonement when he went up at his ascension. He started the inauguration of the sanctuary. And there's evidence to show from the book of Hebrews to show that. Um, some say, well, the sanctuary was all fulfilled in Jesus. I mean, Jesus was the fulfillment of everything. And so what are you talking about a heavenly sanctuary for? How do we deal with that? I argue that it was all fulfilled in Jesus. The first stage of it was fulfilled in Jesus and is still being fulfilled in the church, which is also the temple, the body of Christ. But it will have a final phase of fulfillment, apocalyptic phase at the end of time. And Evangelical Christians just focus on one-third of the answer. They don't see the other two-thirds of the answer. We could spend more time on that one. Uh, we talked about the observation of the festivals already. There are those who are setting times, still setting dates off into the future after 1844. you have any people around here that are doing that? you have an answer for them? Can you still set dates? Is there still time prophecies after 1844? I don't believe so. I believe there's good evidence why we cannot set any dates, specific dates after 1844. Um, some say, well, you know, the sanctuary was basically, in Moses' sanctuary, was just borrowed from the ancient Near East. Because the temples in the ancient Near Eastern times, they looked exactly like those sanctuaries that Moses built and that Solomon built. So how can we say that they really have any divine pattern, that they're a copy of the heavenly? They're just borrowed just borrowed from the ancient Near East. 
Those are some of the problems that the critical scholars bring up. Uh, if those are none of your problems, then don't even mention them, and I won't have to worry about them, answering or talking about them. If you struggled with some of those or with some others or you have some other question that has nothing to do with this, now is your chance for me to uh, say I don't know the answer to that question and shove it off to someone else here. So go ahead. Speak into the mic, though, since this is being recorded. I had a couple questions uh, based on your last uh, okay. presentation. Good. You were talking about the first, third, and seven months of the year. Yes. Um, I have two questions. One is what months... Uh, in our calendar today, do those refer to? And then the second question I had is in Leviticus 23:41, when it's talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, it talks about you shall keep it seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. Yes. And I'm just wondering if that word forever means that we were to continue to keep it even after Jesus' time, or why don't aren't we supposed to keep it now if he said to keep it forever in your generations? Okay, really two great questions. The first question is one that I should have covered, and I'm sorry, I was trying to go fast to watch the clock, and so I didn't get into that. I did say the spring of the year, but Nissan comes in March or April. First month starts in the spring, March or April. Unless you're in Australia, it starts in the fall, March or April in the fall. You re I really get in trouble going down to Australia to try to lecture on the sanctuary because I say, the spring festivals, and it's fall for them. And the fall festivals, it's spring for them. So you have to avoid using the word spring and fall and talk about months. This usually comes in uh, May or June. Sivan 6. And the high holy days of the seventh month usually come in September or October. That's the first question. Second question has to do with the word forever. And as some of you know, the word here is olam in Hebrew, which does not always mean in, perpetu in perpetuity. It means as long as conditions last, you are to do it until conditions should change that call for a change. So, for example... In uh, Exodus chapter uh, 20, um, 21 and verse 6, if you have a servant... And he wants to stay with you. He doesn't want to go free after seven years. It says then, verse 6, His master shall bring him to the judges. He shall bring him to the door, to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And he shall serve him forever. That's the same word. Olam. But it doesn't mean that he's going to be serving him for a billion years. It means as long as conditions last that he's alive, that he will serve him. And this is the use of this word in Hebrew, olam. And so as long as the Jewish economy was in force, this is what they were to do. The Jews understood this themselves. Uh, in Jewish writings, the, even the Jews understood Still, still today understand that when the Messiah comes, the festivals will be no longer in force because the reality toward which they point will have, will have come. And so that's, that's the scoop about the word forever. Yes? Just to follow up on that, what festivals do they know are not going to be in force and which ones are going to still be in force? Like, do they make the same distinction we make between the ceremonial law and the moral law? Well, you know, interestingly, they, they do. Uh, the only one that they say will still be in force, if, I re if I'm remembering right, is the festival of Purim, which was not a ceremonial law. It was a celebration in the time of Esther, remember, when the Jews were, were, were uh, 
delivered from Haman and the and those who were trying to kill the Jews. And so it was set as a as a festival to to rejoice before the Lord every um, every Purim every year at the I think it's the twelfth month. And no, they they spoke about not the Jew, not the Sabbath festival, but they spoke about the uh, the annual festivals. But they didn't they didn't speak about the Sabbath, so they made that distinction as well. Uh, there is a study that one of my students did recently. His name is Ross Cole, C O L E, and he wrote a dissertation on the Pentateuchal sacred times, and he looked at the he looked at five criteria of permanence that are that could be extrapolated from the from the text, you know, uh, different. Uh, when did they start? Is there any indication when they end? Are they should they should they be observed at a certain place? And does it have to be connected with the place? And and he established five five criteria for permanence, and he ran them through all of these festivals, and demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt, to my mind, that for every one of the annual festivals. They didn't meet a single one of these criteria of permanence. They were they weren't didn't go back to creation. They started only after sin. They were connected with the temple. They were connected with the sacrifices, and on and on and on. So that when the sacrifices end, when the temple ends, when sin ends, when when the reality comes, the statute of limitations finishes, and they're and they're no longer applicable. Whereas the Sabbath. Doesn't, isn't bound by any statute of limitations. None of those five that he found from scripture apply to the Sabbath. It was a powerful, powerful dissertation. I'm urging him to write it up as a popular book, but he hasn't done that yet. So he teaches at Avondale. If you want to bother him, write to him at Avondale and say, get that in print as a popular book. Powerful one. Okay. Any other, uh, queries? Why don't you get get that on on? What's a good source? Uh, my question is just what's a good source to go to to show that you know the various dates that we use uh, specifically um, Yom Kippur in 1844 um, to show people independently that these did occur at certain times of the year and you know continuing like even this year you know where do you go to say yeah Yom Kippur just occurred a couple days ago and so forth? Okay. Um, as far as modern occurrences of these dates, you can go to most calendars will tell you when Yom Kippur, I, my little date book, will tell me Yom Kippur is this day, Day of Atonement. And so a list of these festivals. You can also get a Hebrew calendar that shows all of the Jewish dates and when the new, new moon festivals are and when all these festivals are. Those, are. those are available in bookstores, the Jewish calendars. But with... Okay, but here's the, here's the caution. The Jewish, the, the rabbinic way of calculating the festivals, the festival dates, is based upon a sophisticated mathematical formula that they worked out while they were in captivity during the Babylonian captivity because they weren't there to observe the calendar. It's based on the harvest, exactly. And according to the, the way that the scriptures describe it, you came to the 12th month of the year. I mean, the new moon was not hard. I mean, you, you, you observe when that's a new moon, you start a new month. But even that was based on observation. So it could be a day or two off. So you had to be in Jerusalem to really know that. And then, so they'd figure the new month, moons by the observation of when the crescent moon first appeared above the sky. But on the 12th month, uh, they would go out toward the end of the 12th month and look at the harvest, the barley harvest. Remember what we just talked about here last hour? The barley harvest had to be ready so that they could wave a wave sheaf of ripe barley on the day after the first Sabbath of Passover. And so they had to go out to the harvest toward the end of the 12th month and say, is this barley going to be ready? Is it going to be ripened? There's a special Hebrew word for that. It's actually abib. Is it going to be in the ear? Is it going to be abib by the 15th day? And if it wasn't going to be, then they would add a, an intercalated month, a 13th month, 
Because, you know, we got 12 months, but it doesn't quite fit with 365 days. A solar year and a lunar calendar don't quite mesh. And so about five times out of every 19 years, you have to add an extra month in order for it to work out. The Arabs don't do that. And that's why Ramadan, you know, you heard about Ramadan that they're celebrating over there and the earthquake, they can't, they can't eat during this month. It wanders throughout the whole year. Sometimes it'll be in the spring, sometimes it'll be a fall, because they never enter in, add an intercalated extra month. But the Jews do, so that it keeps the calendar basically in the same seasons. So the question is, in 1844, was that the year that the barley was ripe in time so that they could wave the wave sheaf? Or did they have to add an extra month just before that year started? And the rabbis said, according to their calculations of, of math, they didn't care about the, they don't care about what really actually happens in the harvest because they don't have to do this anymore. There's no temple. The rabbis said there was no need to add a 13th month that year. But guess what? There were a few Karaites. That's a group of Jews, the Karaite Jews, that were still living in Jerusalem in 1844. And the Adventist pioneers heard about this group of Karaites that were living in Jerusalem. And they found out that the Karaite Jews added an extra month. We're about a month, we're a month ahead of the rabbis. And so on that year of 1844, our Adventist pioneers followed the Karaites who were following the biblical plan, sola scriptura, rather than rabbinic tradition, and they added that 13th month. And so if you go to the Almanac of 1844, it will say Day of Atonement is September 21, not October 22. But if you go to the Karaites, you will find uh, this missionary that actually went there about 1840 and, and met this group of Karaites and reported it in the American repository. He found that uh, the, that the Karaites were still observing, they're still observing the festivals according to the calendar that was about a month different than the rabbis. So they still were there and were still doing it. And uh, so, based upon Karaite observation. And we don't, unfortunately, we don't have any Karaite records, but we have records of this, of this missionary that, know, that said they were there, I met them, and their calendar is different than the, than the rabbis. And uh, this is all written up, actually, on a website. Um, let me think of The Karaites are still alive and well in Jerusalem today, and they're figuring the, the celebrations based upon observation now rather than upon this mathematical formula. And so they're... they're if you want to really know when these festivals take place, go to the carerightcorner.com. I think it's called carerightcorner.com, and it describes when the festivals are taking place now. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of that website, and it's an Adventist pastor that has this. I could, if if you want to write me at uh, Davidson, Davidson dot, uh, at andrews.edu, I can give you the website for that. Okay. Good question. So yes, there are sources. Uh, just one more answer to that question. Bill Shea has done an, in, an intensive study of this, not using the Karite data, but using a straight dead reckoning from the mathematical materials, the, the, the astronomical tablets. And he has shown that it has to be October 22 that year. And that's written up in his little book, Bill Shea's little book, Selected Studies in Prophetic Interpretation the last chapter of his book, Selected Studies, Prophetic Interpretation. So that'd be another source where you can find that. Does that help? Okay. Go ahead. got a couple of questions. Um, the first one, it seems like every one of the feasts, the antitype fell exactly on the same day. Um, is What's going to happen with the tabernacle feast? Is that going to also be on the same day? Is that possible? Well, I think it could be. Uh, that's going to be when the New Jerusalem descends from heaven. And why not, if, if God has been precise ever, all the rest of the time, why wouldn't he want to have the tabernacle descend on Feast of Tabernacles? Yeah, I think it's going to happen then. 
Are we pretty sure that that's how you interpret that? That's that's what that means, the New Jerusalem descends? Well, there's two basic interpretations of that. Some say that it refers to a second coming. Others say it refers to the new earth. Uh, I tend toward thinking that it's the new earth because at his second coming, there still has to be the scapegoat that's led out into the wilderness. And then once the scapegoat ritual is finished, then Feast of Tabernacles starts. And that uh, the scapegoat takes place after the second coming. So that's why I see the the Feast of Tabernacles as as the new earth and the blowing of the trumpet, which, according to Leviticus 25, is to take place at the end of the Day of Atonement. That great shofar sounding the jubilee trumpet. That's the second coming. That's when the dead, that's when the, the trumpet of Michael the Archangel will be blown. So I see that as the second coming and the Feast of Tabernacles as the new earth. But, you know, uh, by then... One will merge into the other, and we'll have the Feast of the Marriage Supper of the Lamb that will give way to Feast of Tabernacles. So we'll start celebrating for sure when we get to heaven, whether it's called Feast of Tabernacles or not. Just a, yeah. a second question. Um, the fact that we're living a day of atonement right now, this is a little bit different direction. Um, does that affect the way I live my life as a Christian? Would I have been different if I lived, say, before 1844? How does that impact me personally? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, what should be our lifestyle? That, there was a guy up here. This who was that that asked that question last night of me? I don't know. I guess he's not here today. Uh, what should we be doing during the Day of Atonement? Is it any different than what we what happened before the Day of Atonement? For me, God gives the answer of that in Leviticus 23. He actually gives five activities for. Israel on the Day of Atonement. And each one of those describes what our activity should be at the since 1844. Uh, I've written this up as a paper that I'd be happy to send to you if you want the details of this. Again, just write to, maybe I should put that on the board here. In fact, if you, if you really want to get an answer fast, don't write to me because I'm way behind in my email. But my secretary is, responds very quickly. So if you write to Shaud, S-H-O-W-D, her name is Dorothy, Dorothy Shaw, at andrews.edu. And just ask for the paper called The Good News of Yom Kippur, and I've dealt with this in detail. But to give you the brief version of it, uh, Leviticus 23, starting in verse 27, it says... The tenth day of this month shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation. There's the first thing. They were to come together. They were to come to the sanctuary. And so I argue since 1844 is the special time for us to have our eyes on the sanctuary. We should be focused upon the sanctuary. And the Adventist people have been raised to give a message of a sanctuary. Uh, Then it says... And you shall afflict your souls. Afflict your souls. In Hebrew, that literally means you shall humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. And as I look at the Adventist lifestyle issues, I am convinced that we have given our kids the wrong reasons for many of our lifestyle reasons. or not good enough reasons. Why don't I drink? I don't drink because... When the priest went into the sanctuary, he was not to touch any alcohol. And as I am going in with Jesus during Day of Atonement, I'm not going to be drinking any alcohol so that my mind can be clear, unlike Nadab and Abihu, who went in and offered strange fire while they were drunk. And we could go into other things. Day of Atonement was a time for the taking off of ornaments. And day of, a, day of judgment throughout Scripture, when there was an investigative judgment, the ornaments came off as a sign you were in the investigative judgment. Does that mean God doesn't like ornaments? He loves beautiful jewels. He made them. In fact, he's going to deck his beloved bride with jewels. The New Jerusalem will be, is decked with jewels. And we who are part of that will wear crowns of gold that will be studded with jewels. But he says... That comes at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now we are engaged to Christ, but we're not married yet to Him. 
And so to take the symbol of marriage before we're married, we're instead in the day of the day of, of, of investigative judgment. And that's the time for the sign of, of afflicting of soul. And so that's the reason I don't wear jewelry. It's not because jewelry's ugly. It's just that God wants to put on the jewelry on me. I'm going to wait and let him put it on me, rather than me jumping the gun and have a sign that I'm married to him before, before the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I think we could go to other, other experiences of our lifestyle and ask, is this in harmony with the spirit of Day of Atonement? And we might come up with some wonderful reasons that our kids would buy. My son just asked me just two weeks ago, said, Dad, why don't we drink? I can't find any arguments against it in Scripture. It seems like they had some wine once in a while. I know there are those texts, wine is a mocker, strong drink is right. I know those, but there also seems to be some others that go the other way. I presented this Day of Atonement picture to him. And he said, Dad, that's the first answer that's ever made sense to me. Thanks. And I said, thank you, Lord. You know, thanks for giving me something to say that made sense to, to John. Uh, so that's the second activity, afflicting of souls. By the way, this same phrase is found in Isaiah 58. Because the Sabbath of Isaiah 58 is the Day of Atonement Sabbath. It specifically says there in Isaiah 58, lift up your voice like a shofar, like a trumpet, and tell my people their sins. Then it says, why do they fast on the day of fast? The Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, was not a time when any Jew would ever fast. They don't fast on weekly Sabbaths. Only one fast for the Jew. It's the Day of Atonement Sabbath. It goes on to say, why do they afflict their souls? That's language from Day of Atonement, from right here. And so, if you want to know what to do on Day of Atonement that is in accordance with living a lifestyle of humbling ourselves before God, read Isaiah 58. It's the whole picture about this, about Day of Atonement Sabbath. And then, fourthly, Well, we just had two. Afflict your, convocation, afflict your souls. Offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Focus on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In Ellen White's words, in these last days, one theme should swallow up everything else. Christ our righteousness. If you want to do what they did on Day of Atonement, you focus on the gospel. And God is, since 1844, wanting to restore the gospel of New Testament times with its balance on justification and sanctification in the setting of the judgment. That's the Adventist message. That's the three angels' message. Righteousness by faith. And then finally it says, and you shall do no work on that day. Verse 28. Obviously we're not going to quit our jobs. What does it mean to do no work? Hebrews 4 gives us the answer. Resting like God rests from his finished work by entering into an experience of trusting solely in his righteousness and not our works. We are entering into God's rest. We're experiencing that Sabbath rest of grace that Hebrews 4 describes for us. And then finally, it says, to make atonement for you. Verse 28, to make, you shall do no work for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you and compare that with chapter 16, Leviticus 16, and verse 16 and verse 30. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins from before the Lord. The day of atonement Adventists should be teaching is a special day of cleansing. Not in order to save us, but because we've already been saved. Deep cleansing. A time when by focusing upon the Lamb of God, by beholding Him, we become changed as to His image. That, to me, is the meaning of Day of Atonement. And it's summarized right there in the typology of Leviticus 23. Does that help? I tried to elaborate on that in this article, but uh, that's the main points of it. Yes? Question. Um, the 1,240-day year prophecies that's mentioned several times in the Bible. What do the other religions say at the time they ended? I have never heard of any um, scenario that they give this prophecy. The, the, the other denominations, uh, Christian denominations, uh, I think you're mentioning the 1260-day prophecy of, of uh, Daniel 7 and then again of 
Revelation and again in Daniel 12. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The critical scholars, the critical scholars will say all of this is talking about the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, that Greek king back before Jesus lived. It's talking about the time, a period of approximately three years when uh, he uh, defiled the, the temple there and then it was restored and 1260 is an approximate date for that and the 2300 is another approximate date. It's a little bit longer, but they didn't, you know, they couldn't prof- they couldn't predict the future, so they they just gave these dates that were approximately right. In fact, they didn't even know remember exactly how what it was. So these were prophecies that were written after the event took place, and it's sort of an approximation of the of the of the Antiochus Epiphanes prophecy. But if you do that, if you follow the historical critical way, the preterist way of interpreting, you have to acknowledge that the prophecy failed. Because immediately after, at least the 2300-day prophecy, Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, there was supposed to be then the coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ and all the kingdoms, the other kingdoms done away with. You know, after after uh, this little horn power, the next thing that was going to be was not another world empire. It was going to be the coming of Christ. And they have to just acknowledge, hey, the prophets were wrong. We can't trust the prophets. That's the critical way. The evangelicals, actually Martin Luther and all the reformers, they all believed in a year-day principle. Martin Luther even wrote that Christ was going to come in about 400 years after his time, around the time of 1840. And I'm not sure... Uh, how they put, I don't remember how they put the 1260 with the 2300 days, but they saw a prediction still in the future that was linked, interestingly, not only to the year-day principle, but to the papacy. Every reformer understood that the, that, that prophecy had to do with the papacy. And this included... The magisterial reformers, Luther, Calvin, Melanchthon, included the other reformers. All the reformers were clear on that. The year-day principle to interpret those prophecies, and it dealt with the papacy. Now, what's happened since the reformers? Modern Christians have gone following two Jesuit priests. One that went the way of preterism and said prophecy failed. It was referring to Antiochus Epiphanes. Another group going and saying futurists, dispensationalists, saying there's a gap of 2,000 years and now it's going to be fulfilled in a three and a half day period of time in the tribulation at the time after the rapture. But you know what? There's no biblical data for either of those views. One has to say prophecy failed. The other has to say there's a gap of 2,000 years that's not not in the prophecy. The only view that's consistent with the whole biblical data, is the historicist view, which the reformers believed, and there's only one group left in the world that still believes it, and that's the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I am proud to say I am a member of a group that are the heirs of the Reformation in prophecy. And I praise God for that. It was a long answer maybe, but I think... Okay, okay. All right, I'm going to take two more questions. It's about 5.30, and then we'll head off into the sunset. Yes? All right, uh, since he didn't have the mic, let me just repeat that. The 2300, I'll try to, help me if I don't get it right. 2300 day prophecy was written before in the Old Testament. It was sealed. It was sealed during the time of Paul's writings. So the question is, did Paul refer to the Day of Atonement? In the book of Hebrews, I think, is what you're thinking of specifically. And... uh, to answer your question, let me just take a couple of 
approaches toward it. I believe that it was sealed. It's the only book in the Old Testament that was sealed. All the other prophets of the Old Testament showed what God hoped would happen through Israel with the promise of Israel being God's special favored people that would last forever. Jerusalem would have never been destroyed and that the blessings of God would spread from Jerusalem and Israel to cover the whole world. And it would have happened far different than the book of Daniel describes if Israel had been faithful. God was describing through the prophets what his will was for his people Israel. At the same time, Daniel was written to show that God knows the end from the beginning. He knew what would happen. And so he wrote Daniel to show that he's not a God who doesn't know the future. He's not taken by surprise. And so he wrote lockstep, one step after another, one kingdom after another, showing what would happen in the scenes of world history. And then God sealed it up. Even in the time of Jesus, it could have happened according to what the, prophet, the other prophets said. Jesus was reaching out to the people as a nation, as a theocracy, and longed for them to accept him and for Israel to, to continue on as a nation forever. But you know what happened. The leaders, at least, rejected him. And the theocracy ended, and God had to choose a remnant out of Israel. And from that remnant, he started the Christian church. And it went on in the time of Paul. Jesus referred to the book of Daniel, as you know. In, in referring to the future, in, da, in Matthew 24, he said, he who, underst he who has understanding, let him read. So even though it was a sealed book, there were parts of it at least that they could understand. And that part dealing with the fall of Jerusalem, Daniel 9, could have been understood in the time of Jesus. What about the Day of Atonement? Did Paul understand the Day of Atonement was still future? And he wrote, I believe he did. And to give a short answer to a very important question, these texts that we read last night about coming to the sanctuary, some have seen as referring to the Day of Atonement. Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul that enters the presence behind the veil where Jesus has entered for us, having become high priest forever talks about Jesus going within the veil. And that phrase in the Old Testament usually refers to the second veil. And so is this describing Jesus going within the second veil to start the Day of Atonement? So says some of the detractors against Adventists. But does the text actually say what the event is that Jesus went in for? It doesn't say. It just says he went in. Besides the Day of Atonement, what other time of year did the high priest or the one acting as priest, go into the entire sanctuary? What other occasion besides Day of Atonement did he go even into the Holy of Holies? Well, I'm just thinking of one time. It wasn't, the high, it wasn't Aaron yet because Aaron had not been appointed as priest and so Moses was functioning as priest. And do you remember he went into the holy place and to the most holy place? Why? to inaugurate the sanctuary. Before it started up in Exodus chapter 40, it describes Moses going into the holy place and into the holy most holy place to anoint with oil all of the articles of furniture. That was to start up the services, to inaugurate the earthly sanctuary. He went in to the Holy of Holies. Could it be that that's what this is talking about? And how can I know for sure? What well, so happens that Hebrews is in a chiastic structure. The central part of Hebrews is in a chiastic structure, a mountain climbing pattern. And this verse is matched on the other side of the pattern with the only other text that talks about the veil, about entering within the veil. And that's in chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And scholars generally recognize this text, chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, is speaking of the same event as chapter 6. They, they, they are free to acknowledge that. But they'll go right on to say, this is speaking about Day of Atonement. But guess what? 
In this text, in chapter 10, it gives the key word that tells you what the event was that happened when Jesus went in. And it's not Day of Atonement. I'm sorry. And the word is right here in verse 20. By a new and living way, which he... Anybody got the New American Standard Bible? Anybody have the New American Standard? You have it. The New American Standard translates this most accurately. It's the Greek word enkainizo, and it means to inaugurate. To inaugurate. And it's used in the Old Testament, in the very Bible that, that Paul is quoting from here, the Septuagint. He's quoting in the book of Hebrews from the Septuagint because he's writing to people that were Jews outside of Jerusalem. They couldn't read Hebrew. They could only read Greek. So he quotes to them out of the Greek Bible. And this word, enkainizo, inaugurate, is only found in one chapter in the Pentateuch. And it's not Leviticus 16 dealing with the Day of Atonement. It's found in Numbers chapter 7, which is the chapter on the inauguration of the sanctuary. It's never, this word is never used for the Day of Atonement. It's used for the inauguration. What's the point of what I'm trying to make? According to Hebrews 10, when Jesus entered into the sanctuary, it was not for Day of Atonement in the first century. It was to inaugurate, to start up the services of the Day of Atonement. And this key word tells us that. But now to your question. Keep reading. Look at verse 25. Not Verse 10, chapter 10, verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The word, the day. If you were reading this as a Hebrew reader in the first testament, first century time, The word, the day, is a technical word, technical term that means the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. In the the Mishnah, the Jewish Mishnah, which is the commentary on on the Torah, they have a whole chapter which is called the day. And it's all about the Day of Atonement. It's called Yoma, that's right. The Day of Atonement. And so I believe Paul is saying here, so much the more do we need to gather together as you see the Day of Atonement coming. So has it come yet in Paul's day? No, it's still future in Paul's day. And what does he say that day is going to consist of? Read the next verse, verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. Paul does not speak of Christ's work in the first century as that of judgment. He says judgment is in the future. And what kind of judgment is it? Well, fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. That's executive judgment. But read the next verse. Verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. What kind of a judgment is that where you've got witnesses testifying? You lawyers, you can tell me. It's a trial. It's not the sentencing stage. You're too late. How come you keep saying liars? <laughs> Do I say liars? I'm really trying to say lawyers. <laughs> Didn't think I had that much of a southern accent since I've never lived in the south. Okay. Our lawyers can testify lawyers can testify to us that when you're talking about the testimony of two or three witnesses, you're speaking of the trial phase. It's investigative judgment. And Paul says it's still future. And who's going to be judged? Our detractors say our names never came up, never come up in judgment. You know, we're just the ju- we're judged in Christ, and our names never came up in judgment in the future. Read what the text says here in verse 30. For we know him who said, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay," says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge who his people. That's us. 
So here we have a clear picture, I believe, in Hebrews of the Day of Atonement. Yoma, the day. It's still future from the time of Paul. It wasn't what Jesus did when he went back to heaven the first, when he first went back to heaven. It was still future and it was a time of judgment and it was going to happen sometime in the future. He doesn't say when. For that, you got to go to Daniel. But Hebrews is completely consistent with the book of Daniel, with the book of Revelation. Sorry, I tried to make that just as compact as I could. Three-hour lecture there in the sanctuary class that I tried to go into 10 minutes and I may have gone too fast. But I've written this up as an article too. I'd be happy to send to you if you want the full, full data on that. One more question. The last word. Who's going to have the last word? Does a lawyer want to give the last word? No, we don't want liars to give the last word. <laughs> okay, good. Can you expound a little bit on what Jesus was doing then between Ascension and 1844? Okay, that's a great question. Let's end on that one. I'm glad, I'm glad you let me end on a positive note here. What was Jesus doing when he went back to heaven? Well, what did the priest do when, a sin, when the sin offering was offered? He took the blood and he, off, and he applied it into the sanctuary, either on the horns of the altar or into the holy place. He took it there. He was doing the work of mediation. And Hebrews is very clear on what Jesus is it was doing during that time. And I, th I think the key text to answer your question is Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those to come to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. What's Jesus been doing? He's been applying the benefits of the atonement to you and me so that when we confess our sins and reach out and accept him, he lifts his hands and he says, Father, my blood, my blood, these are my children. He's been engaged in the work of a lawyer, testifying in our behalf all through history, but especially since 1844. It's taken on a new urgency. But he hasn't stopped this work. He's still doing the same work. Since 1844, he's taken on a, another special work of the final wind-up of the great controversy, but he's doing the same work now. He's living to make intercession for us. That's what caused the disciples to have such power in the upper room. When the Holy Spirit descended, remember like we just said an hour ago, it wasn't the Holy Spirit as such that gave them power. It was the fact that that was a sign that Jesus was now their high priest interceding for them, covering them with his merits, standing for them in the, in, the, in the heavenly realm. And that caused them to be filled with joy so that they could say, wow, we can go and preach this to the whole world. So that's what Jesus is still doing. Don't ever say he stopped this work and start another one. That's a common misconception that Jesus... For, for 1,800 years was doing the holy place ministry and then he stopped that and he started doing the judgment work. Wait a minute, what's wrong with that? That means in the judgment there's no mercy, just judgment. No, he kept on doing this work of intercession and he's just added an additional work and soon that's going to be over and we can go home with him. So I thank God for what he's doing and I'd like to just, I, I'm going to take the opportunity of your question to just make this one more statement about the sanctuary. Some have said, you Adventists, you focus on the sanctuary and not on Jesus. I thought Jesus. Jesus is the center of my religion. You have the sanctuary. And I say, wait a minute, brother. Wait a minute, sister. Where is Jesus now? He's in the sanctuary. If I'm going to focus on Jesus, I'm going to want to focus on what he's doing. And so Adventists are the most Christ-centered people in the world. We, we could be. Now, unfortunately, we've sometimes messed it up by presenting the legalistic version of this whole thing, which is bad news. And I tried to inoculate you that from, from you that today, from that today, to the good news that is centered in Jesus. Because that's where Jesus is. In fact, the great controversy started in the most holy place 
of the heavenly sanctuary where Lucifer fell. And Jesus is solving the sin problem in that same place it started. And as soon as the solution is finished and, and he has revealed to the universe who, who are his and what these final events have bound up, he will cause his sanctuary to revert to its original function, which will not be judgment, but will be his home where he invites us to come and live with him and worship with him forever. So praise God for the Christ-centered message of the sanctuary. Go out, study it, live it, preach it, and rejoice in it. It's a wonderful gift that God has given to us to share with the world. Let's, why don't we stand for our closing prayer? Lord, it's been a long day. I thank you for these people, our brothers and sisters, who love to study your word and for the questions that they've raised. And, and there are better answers, I'm sure, than what I have given. Please uh, lead them, lead all of us to an ever deeper study of this message. Help us to see Jesus always as the center of it. Help us to see the good news and the joy of it. And Lord, I pray that sanctuary life may be our experience and that soon you will come and take us to the marriage supper of the Lamb that will give way to the great Feast of Tabernacles will last for eternity. And Lord, you've heard our, our expression earlier this day that we want to, without one missing, say that we will, by your grace, be there. And we say that again at the end of this session. And I thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer and for the intercession of Jesus, our high priest, and for the love of the Father, for the power of the Holy Spirit, that are all mightily working in our behalf. And we can hardly wait till that day we can see you face to face. Come soon, Lord Jesus, is our prayer. Amen. Amen. Hosanna. 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 Hosanna.